ever watch a show on cult leaders and realize you know a couple of people who could be cult leaders? Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ninja Nerd Warrior Podcast for August 7th, 2023. I am your host, Greg Hernandez, and yeah, I actually, I, I don't know if I've told you this before, but I will get into some random fucking moods with, wow, we're like 30 seconds in, I've already said fuck. Um, I started keeping a tally because I realized like, oh wow, like if I'm, if I'm just the average person listening to this, I'd be like, this dude swears a lot. So yeah, 35 seconds in. First F-bomb dropped. And I'm also fairly convinced that I have ADHD, which would totally explain the first 60 seconds of this show. But, moving on. No, I will get into some random moods of stuff to watch, and since I have, like, every streaming platform on the planet, um, there's never a shortage of, I'll be like, hey, I want to watch Scrubs, because I haven't seen Scrubs in forever. Or, you know what, I haven't seen Martin. That one's That's a show I grew up on. But every once in a while, I get into this these true crime mode. It's not all the time. But I heard about these two shows on Netflix called How to Be a Cult Leader and How to Be a Tyrant. And those just sounded so interesting. I'm like, oh, I need to. Oh, I'm also another tangent here. I'm also a fan of just total abnormal psychology. So the idea of being tricked, seduced. Maybe, I don't know what the proper term would be, into a cult. Fascinated. You have my attention, sir or madam. And so when I hear how to be a cult member, I'm like, oh, I'm clearing my I'm I'm clearing my my calendar. Whatever plans I have, I'm done. And I turn on how to be a cult leader. First off, I need to bitch about this. How the hell? How the hell are you going to do a show called How to Be a Cult Leader and not include David Koresh. How, how, how is that possible? All right. The rock and roll cult leader. That's what he was. But they did a six episode series on how to be a cult leader and no David Koresh. They had like one or two pictures of him, but you didn't bring him up once. That's like doing a documentary on the most epic porn stars of all time and being like, Jenna Jameson who? Like, no, it's stupid, and it's a major oversight, and I hope somebody got fired for it. But this show was, it was seriously, it was not a mockumentary, but it was definitely a satire on how to be a cult leader. And you go into all of these, all of these qualities and all of these, um, basically a checklist of things to do in order to form your own cult. Kyle, did you start a cult? Yep. That's so sweet. And the different episodes are broken down into things like building your foundation, how to grow your flock, reforming their minds, promising eternity. But the funniest thing that I, I found in common was, and they even mentioned it in the special, is the importance of charisma. Nobody wants to follow a boring, uncharismatic cult leader. Come on, that's stupid. And But one thing that I thought was hilarious was how many cult leaders were failed performers and entertainers. 
I already talked about David Koresh. David Koresh was a failed rock star. He was seriously, he tried to put a band together in LA and it, it sucked. It absolutely sucked. Maybe part of it was the fact that um, he couldn't play guitar worth a shit and his real name is uh, Vernon Howell. How many rock stars you know named Vernon? B- beside the lead singer for uh, Living Color. Um, but yeah, his name was Vernon Howell. So he changed his name to David Koresh and he moved out to Texas where you can find religious fucking people with no common sense and started a cult. That's what happened. But damn it, he's not the only one. Remember Marshall Applewhite? Marshall Applewhite was the leader of the Heaven's Gate cult out in Florida. And this one was my favorite cult. They really were. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's, you know, creepy or not to have a favorite cult. But uh, Heaven's Gate was definitely my favorite cult because they were the Star Trek cult. Yeah, that was a thing. Um, Their whole belief system was that when we die, we go to another planet. Yeah, we don't. It's not heaven per se. It's not the Christian heaven anyway. Anyway, it is another planet. And the reason they were the Star Trek cult was because they would seriously watch Star Trek The Next Generation every week like it was a religious service. It really was. And it's the only cult that I thought of myself going like, okay, yeah, I could could see myself joining. And then I heard about the male castration thing and I went, all right, I'm out. I'm done. Yeah. Marshall Applewhite convinced his flock that... that they were going to heaven on a spaceship, but only if they castrated themselves, they all wore the same tracksuit, much like a Star Trek uniform. You ever watch Star Trek? They're all wearing the same jumpsuit, which I love Star Trek Next Generation, but it's one of the dumbest uniforms I've ever seen in my life. It is, it's seriously a neoprene one piece. Neoprene, for all you surfers and scuba divers, that's what they make wetsuits out of. Yeah, that's that's what the Star Trek uniforms were made out of. They were neoprene because they needed something to form fit the actors. Again, that's a tangent right there. Just a little side quest for you. But Marshall Applewhite convinced his flock that they needed to be in a uniform. So they went out and bought tracksuits and Nikes. To the point that Nike actually discontinued the line of shoe that these people bought. I'll get to that in a second. But so, yeah, uh, for those of you who don't know the story, Marshall Applewhite convinced his flock that they needed to be castrated and that there was a comet. The Hale-Bopp comet was about to pass Earth, and he convinced his people that there was a UFO behind the comet that was going to take them to the next level. And so they needed to kill themselves, free themselves of their earthly bonds, if you will. And this spaceship would take their souls to the next planet. But going back to the whole rock and roll uh, cult leader thing. Yeah, Marshall Applewhite did musical theater. That, yeah. So between David Koresh and Marshall Applewhite, we're already seeing this pattern of failed performers, entertainers, which kind of puts you in a mindset of, oh, these people are starved for attention and they're so deranged that not only do they need to be famous, not only do they need to be uh, popular, 
they need to be worshipped. And too bad because they they both died before social media. They would have loved this shit. There was this other um, this other cult leader named Jaime Gomez, and he started the Buddhafield cult. And Jaime was a failed actor, failed model, failed porn star. I'm going to say that again. Failed porn star. How bad does your acting have to suck when you can't make it in porn? But I digress. He started the Buddhafield cult. And yeah, that was it. Buddhafield. That's yeah, that that was the name of it. Um, clearly, Jaime, not that creative, but. This guy starts a cult where his followers worshipped him. Like, which, it's a fucking cult, of course. But he, this was basically every just narcissistic Hollywood, like stereotypical Hollywood actor ever. Started a cult centered around him. All right. And this dude woke up. They, they described his perfect day. He woke up. He had some organic, gluten-free, fucking uh, non-GMO breakfast, whatever it was. And then had his subjects give him his first of four daily massages. He would then go and lead a course in uh, meditation. And then he would... He was also a licensed hypnotherapist, so he would do um, sessions. He would do uh, sessions with his cult, which included hypnotherapy to further strengthen his his hold over uh, them. He would then do his second massage of the day, and it just went on and on and on anyway. But what I'm what I'm pointing at is the pattern here between Koresh and Marshall Applewhite and uh, Jaime Gomez of this failed, this failed performer, this failed rock star, this failed uh, celebrity mindset. Oh, totally forgot about. Okay. This is another side note. Jaime Gomez related. I laughed hysterically. I had a water bottle in my hand. And when they said this, I dropped the water bottle. I was laughing so hard. Gomez used to lead these group meditation sessions and to quote P.T. Barnum, there's a sucker born every minute and to quote Adolf Hitler, repeat the lie until it becomes the truth. So Gomez would lead these meditation sessions where he would convince followers that they were seeing light coming off of him during these meditation sessions. And sure as shit, you actually had people who believed they saw light coming off this son of a bitch. But they had an interview with they had an interview with a couple of reformed cult members. And you had this one guy who said that no matter how hard he tried, he could not see light coming off of Jaime Gomez. And so Gomez does a one on one, quote unquote, one on one session with him where they're both sitting on the ground, lotus position for all you yoga fans. And Gomez tells the guy, close your eyes real tight, focus on me. And I'm going to touch your forehead and I'm going to pass some of my energy onto you and you will see the light coming off of me. And what he does 
is he jams his thumb into this fucking guy's forehead as hard as possible. And he's got a little flashlight in his hand and he's flashing the flashlight in this guy's eyes and through clenched eyelids. This guy believes that he's seeing the light come off of Jaime Gomez. And right there, he was like, he had me right there. He had me. That is some Andy Kaufman shit. That is. Oh, my God. I laughed hysterically. He seduced this guy into a cult with like a two inch flashlight just flashed in his eyes. I died. But anyway, but again, we're seeing this this narcissistic need for attention to be worshipped. And in a similar fashion brings us to Jim Jones. Jim Jones wasn't a failed actor. He wasn't a failed rock star. He didn't do musical theater and he sure shit didn't do porn. Not publicly anyway, but he was a, he was a preacher. His father was a preacher for whatever small town they lived in. Again, I, I horrible at uh, doing research and I probably should have been taking notes while I was watching this. Now that I'm thinking about it, but Jim Jones's father was a preacher and little Jimmy noticed how much power and how much sway his father held over his congregation. And little Jimmy said, I want to do that. I want to be a preacher. Okay. But his dad, to his dad's credit, his dad was a good dude. His dad ran a soup kitchen. His dad helped the homeless. His dad did what you would expect a preacher to do. Jim Jones said, yeah, fuck that. No, no, no. That's, that's way too much goddamn work. Jim Jones built his cult again to worship him. And that's, but again, going back to the pattern of this need to be idolized, this need to be worshiped, this need to have people hang off your every word. It's the common thread in all of these cult leaders. And that's when I came to a really, really alarming um, realization, which was... I have a lot of friends that I could totally see running a cult. <laughs> Let me rephrase. I'm not going to say friends. I'm going to say people I've worked with and worked for people. I know um, my entire adult life has been pretty much spent around strippers, stand-up comics and pro wrestlers. So right off the bat, there's already the entertainment element in there. Um, I have a, uh, there's a promoter I used to work for named Billy and Billy started off as a good dude, but Billy started, Billy was like us. Billy was just an indie worker working his shows and he did what every indie worker does, which is you start to realize, you know what? This shit started to hurt. Uh, my body feels like hammered shit Hey, wouldn't it be cool if I ran my own promotion and had people work for me? You, you already see where this is leaning dangerously in a bad, in a bad direction. Okay. Um, so Billy starts his own promotion 
and I worked for it for years. Vendetta Pro Wrestling. And Billy does the cult leader thing where you guys are going to work for me. I'm going to pay you as little as humanly possible. Um, I'm going to take all your work and I'm going to take credit for it. And if you leave, I'm going to try and destroy you. That was, um, yeah, that was basically what working for Billy was like because Billy was one of the ones that taught me when I first got into pro wrestling, Billy said, work everywhere you can work for as many promoters as you can work as hard as you can to get your name out there so that you can build this reputation. You can build this career and hopefully someday it will take you to the top. So right off the, right off the bat, right from the beginning, I was taught to work for as many promoters as you could. However, when I tried to work for different promoters, I was called disloyal. I was called a sellout. Other promoters that tried to book me would get phone calls saying, hey, you might not want to use this guy. He's not very good. Uh, he's not going to represent your promotion very well. And you're better off just not using him at all. So I have a guy who taught me to work for everybody, then tries to sabotage me for taking his advice and working for everybody. Okay. Now, you might say, Greg, that's not a cult leader. That's an asshole. And you wouldn't be wrong. You wouldn't. But the best part was when he started getting these, like, delusions of persecution and everybody was out to get him. And if you didn't, um, if you didn't work for him, you were one of the ones trying to bring him down. And I got a call from one of Billy's disciples named Jimmy. And I used to give Jimmy a hard time because he looked like uh, he looked like Jesse Pinkman from Breaking Bad. And now keep in mind, I've already had my falling out with Billy. I tried to take a booking. He had a show on Friday. He booked me on the show on Friday. There were two other shows going on in the area, Saturday and Sunday. So I took the bookings for Saturday and Sunday, as well as the booking for Friday. So I'm wrestling on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Billy finds out that how dare I book other shows after his show. They were not conflicting with his show. They were after his shows and Billy's butthole slammed shut. And so Billy unbooked me. Well, if you're going to work for them, you're not working for me. And I went, cool. I don't have to pay for a hotel for an extra day. Awesome. Because you're going to pay me 20 bucks to drive two and a half hours. I'm going to spend $60 in gas for you to pay me 20. So, um, yeah, the, the, those other two shows are paying me 80 bucks each. So, cool. I get Friday off. I get a call from Jimmy. Hey, bro, you uh, you think you made the right choice? And I just started laughing and I'm going, did this motherfucker send his minion to, to confront me about this? Like, that's what I mean. It was we used to joke about the cult leader mentality. We used to make uh, cult leader Billy jokes just among the boys. But when he sends his hired muscle, his hired muscle being all of 132 pounds, 
I mean, I've dated cheerleaders that weighed more than Jimmy Ray. But when he sends his hired muscle, quote unquote, in this soprano style uh, confrontation of, are you sure you made the right choice going with them and not us? I was sitting there and I'm laughing going, I'm thinking like the cult leader jokes were just that. They were jokes. This motherfucker's actually committed to it now. And I told Jimmy, I said, hey, um, I didn't make a choice, bro. I was I was committed to working shows on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Next thing you know, I was kicked off the Friday show, which means I don't have to drive down a day earlier. I don't have to spend three days out of town. I only have to spend two. But Billy is not the first wrestling promoter that I've met with this cult leader mentality. There was this piece of shit up in the Bay Area named Gabe. And Gabe, oh my God, Gabe was such a piece of shit. I know for a fact that Gabe had wrestlers hurt other wrestlers because the wrestler that was getting hurt didn't shake his hand properly. I know for a fact that Gabe pulls Tommy aside and tells Tommy, hey, uh, that guy didn't shake my hand right. Um, I want you to tune him up in the match tonight. And Tommy did it. And Tommy told me later, he's like, I felt really bad about it because fucking guy didn't do anything to me. Why do I care? You know, but when you have a promoter who holds your career in the palm of his hand and you actually start to believe like, hey, this guy could make me or break me. You start to do shit that you wouldn't do otherwise. And that's what I mean. Like I've worked for wrestling promoters who do get this power trip. They do get the cult leader mentality where what I say goes. And if you question me, I'm going to have somebody else kick the shit out of you. And but what's funny is that it wasn't just pro wrestling when I broke into stand-up comedy, I worked for this guy named Yulalio. And Yulalio was the most delusional son of a bitch I've ever met in my life. Because here's how open mic comedy works. Which is to say poorly. You, as a promoter, you go, you find a bar, you find a restaurant, you find whatever. And you go in and you say, hey, what is your least busy day of the week. And they're going to say Wednesday because it's always Wednesday. And so you say, okay, what I want to do is I want to do an open mic. And that way uh, I will promote your, my shows being held in your restaurants. They will draw people in and hopefully we can increase your drink sales. We can increase your, your food sales. And with any luck, we can build a reputation where the comedy show gets more recognition. Your business starts drawing some more people. It's win-win. That's how open mics are supposed to work. Not Eulalio. No, no. Um, for one thing, this fucking guy told me, he's like, well, I've been doing stand-up for eight years. Cool, bro. Um, yeah, most stand-ups I've, I've heard of tell you that you have to go at least 10 years before you know what the hell you're doing. But cool. Cool with your eight years. All right. Awesome. But he would go to bars and restaurants and demand that they pay him $2,500 a week to do these shows. Bro, um, they just inform you that they're not making any money on these nights and you want them to turn over $2,500 of what they don't have. We're already off to a bad start, <laughs> but 
I was trying to get to stand up and you got to put up with assholes that you wouldn't piss on if they were on fire when you're trying to get started in something like this. And so I just sat there and kind of like, all right, okay. And I watched him do this shit and he puts me on my first three open mics. All right. And I'm not one of these assholes who comes out and goes, oh yeah, my first time I killed. No, no. I was trying not to shit myself. Not going to lie. Nervous as shit. I was shocked. I got through the first five minutes, but that's how, that's how stand-up comedy goes. And Eulalio tells me, he says, dude, you're really good. And I'm thinking you're full of shit, but okay. And he starts telling me that he wants to put me on these paid shows and how I'm going to get paid to do stand-up after three weeks. I've been doing pro wrestling for about 12, 15 years at this point. So I'm like, you're full of shit. No, no, nobody gets paid by their fourth show. That's not a thing. But all right, again, I'm going to let this guy bullshit me. He wants to do a show 10 minutes outside of Bakersfield at an indoor swap meet where he's telling me we can draw 200 people. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. Um, we're going to skip over the fact that I live in Bakersfield, born and raised here. And um, no way in hell. There is no fucking way in hell you're getting 200 people to drive 10 minutes out of town to watch stand-up comedy at an indoor swap meet. It's not going to happen. All right? There's two things that Bakersfield is really good at. Um, Bakersfield always has the top ranking in the state for uh, DUIs and STIs. So we get drunk and like to fuck. That's basically what Bakersfield's good at. And so the farther away from the bars downtown you go, the less of a chance you're going to draw a crowd. That's, that's pretty much, it's common sense, really. You need to have the show as close to the alcohol as possible. And I kept telling him this and I kept telling, and he kept getting pissed at me and he kept telling me, no, no, just promote the show and people will go there. <laughs> I told him, I'm like, um, aren't, aren't you the promoter? Isn't that in your title? Needless to say, the show flopped because horny alcoholics don't leave downtown to go 10 minutes out of town for comedy. And, um, so this dude is pissed at me. He was perfectly fine telling me how long he had done stand up and how he knows the comedy business and how I was really good and he was going to make me a star. All I had to do was everything he said and I was going to be a fucking comedy superstar. And I just, I've dealt with pro wrestling promoters so long that I'm just like that. Hold on. I know that smell. That's bullshit. Yeah, that's what that is. And so when this show flopped, I just kind of laughed it off to myself and I didn't say it out loud, but I'm thinking, I told you, I told you. And I just quietly left Yulalio. Like, I'm like, I'm not working with this fucking guy ever again. The dude tries, he calls me like two weeks later, three weeks later to tell me about this amazing show that he's doing in Lake Elsinore. And my first question was, where the fuck is Lake Elsinore? <laughs> I'd never heard of it. And I born and raised in California, never heard of Lake Elsinore, but okay. And I'm just like, no, nah, bro, I'm good. I'm okay. And he flew off the handle. 
who the fuck are you to say no to me? I've been in this longer than you'll ever know. And he's just going nuts. He has people contacting me, calling me, texting me like, hey, bro, I think you should give Eulalio another chance. You know, he's really doing some great things. And I'm just like, what is this? What is this with people that I piss off sending their minions after me? What kind of bullshit is this? And then it got to the point where Yolalio tells me that he's going to beat my ass. So there are threats of violence for leaving him. Is that not cult mentality? You're not with me. I will destroy you. And I just, I laughed and I told him, I'm like, bro, uh, I do stand up at this, uh, at this bar on Tuesday, this bar on Wednesday, this bar on Thursday, all shows start at seven. You meet me at any one of those and we'll settle this. And that was the last time I heard from you, Lalio. But it's, that's what I'm talking about is this cult leader mentality being tied to failed entertainment types. And while I'm watching this Netflix special, I'm just realizing like, holy shit, how many of those people have I come in contact with? And I get it. I really did. So this how to be a cult leader thing hit me hard. Like I was just like, oh, my God. And last I heard Eulalio was selling car insurance and Billy was doing some midget promotion. Um, I, I have no idea. But um, yeah. So the next one was how to be a tyrant, which was about dictators. And they talked about Muammar Gaddafi. They talked about Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin. They talked about uh, Kim Jong-un and how his entire family. I didn't know this. Kim Jong-un's entire family has ruled North Korea since the 30s. And both of them. I will say this, both of them really good specials. And so if you're a little twisted and you enjoy shit like that, I would highly recommend them. But it's also by this point, it's three in the morning. And so uh, I'm going to go to bed, except Netflix does that. Hey, if you like this, you might like that. And it showed me Night Stalker, the hunt for Richard Ramirez. And I'm just like, oh, hit play. <laughs> I had never seen this. Keep in mind, Richard Ramirez was the first serial killer that existed during my lifetime. I mean, Bundy was still alive when I, you know, when I was a kid, but he had already been caught. Gacy had already been caught. Both of them were already on death row. Nobody had heard of Jeffrey Dahmer yet. So Richard Ramirez was my introduction to serial killers. And I was seven. And I remember these news stories on the news every night. And here's what I learned about Richard Ramirez was he was a bitch. <laughs> he really was. I mean, every serial killer targets uh, um, somebody that's not going to put up a challenge. Somebody's not going to put up any kind of physical resistance. Uh, Bundy targeted women. Gacy targeted children. So no serial killer really goes after somebody that can fight back and possibly kill them in return. Ramirez blitzed all of his victims. Like he snuck into their houses in the middle of the night and 
he's the only serial killer that didn't really have a pattern. He used guns. He used knives. He used uh, bludgeoning objects. He would strangle them. He would. He didn't really have a set pattern, which means he didn't put a whole lot of thought into this. He just did whatever. Anyway, here's the part that I lost it. I laughed my ass off because Richard Ramirez breaks into this married couple's house. And this couple is probably early to mid thirties. Okay. Which I mean, wasn't a, a normal, it wasn't an out of the ordinary for Richard Ramirez. Like he killed men as well as women, but he blitzed them. So he didn't have to worry about the men fighting back or the women for that matter. So he comes across this or he breaks in and there's this married couple. It's like two or three in the morning. They're asleep. And Richard Ramirez has a 22, 22, uh, 22 caliber revolver shoots the wife in the face. Now, anyone who's ever seen a 22 bullet, they're really tiny. The bullet hits the wife on the left side of the nose, goes through her skull, misses any vital organs, any vital blood vessels, lodges in the back of her neck. She survives. The husband gets woken up by the gunshot. Ramirez turns around, shoots him. The bullet grazes the right side of the guy's head, clipping his ear. And Richard Ramirez is standing there holding the gun at the guy. And the guy, <laughs> this had to be some Terminator shit because the guy who was technically just shot in the head just looks at Ramirez and like, you motherfucker. And jumps out of bed, chases Richard Ramirez. And Ramirez goes, oh shit. And turns around and runs out the sliding glass door that he just came through. And I died laughing because you're the one with the gun, asshole. Like, it's a 22 revolver. There's still at least four rounds in the chamber. <laughs> and you're the guy running. The guy with the gun is running away from the angry redneck who just got shot in the face. Things like that just made me laugh so hard. Oh my God. And the only thing this is, I realize we're talking about the night stalker. We're talking about a serial killer. This isn't supposed to be funny, but that part was, and if that part wasn't funny, how they caught him was even better. All right. Because this is truly the funniest shit I've ever heard. First off the clues that they, that they got in connection with the night stalker murders led to this other guy who basically was a friend of Richard Ramirez, but the cops don't know this at the time. The, the, the information leads to this guy. They know this guy's not the killer, but they know this guy knows who the killer is. And then you have this interview with the cop who interviews this friend of Richard Ramirez. And it's basically the cop tells him like, I know that you know who this guy is. You're going to give me his name. You're going to tell me who he is. And of course you've got the dipshit who, uh, I ain't no snitch starts. Fuck you. Fuck you. You're not, what are you? You're a fucking tough guy. Cause you're a cop. One of these dipshits that starts talking shit to a cop. So this cop openly admits in this interview to beating the shit out of this guy, beat a confession out of him until he gave up Richard Ramirez. And I'm watching this going, I am fairly certain that's not a legal confession. <laughs> Any first year lawyer is going to get that thrown out. But anyway, the dude gets tired of getting his ass beat, gives up Richard Ramirez, 
they have a name, they have a picture, they have a fingerprint. And so now they release everything to the newspapers, the name, the picture, the fingerprint. Uh, they found Ramirez by his shoe print. They, they found a size 11 and a half Avia shoe. I haven't heard the brand name Avia since my mom stopped buying my shoes at Kmart when I was eight. And, but they had a, a specific Avia shoe. Like they had everything. So they release it to the newspaper and Ramirez is coming home on a Greyhound bus. Cause he was bouncing back and forth between LA and San Francisco. He gets to a Greyhound bus station. They have cops, undercover cops waiting for him. He spots the cops because, and this cop gave it up. What a, like a dumb shit. He's like, yeah, you can spot undercovers because they're, they're dressed like homeless people, but their teeth are clean. Their hair is clean. And I'm just like, why are you, you're an idiot. Anyway, Ramirez spots the cops, takes off running, gets on a bus. He's sitting on the bus. The dude on the bench, this is straight out of a TV show. The dude on the bench across from him looks at the newspaper he's holding. This guy's holding a newspaper, looks at it, sees Richard Ramirez's picture on the front page, looks up, sees Ramirez sitting across the, the bus from him, immediately gets off the bus and goes to a payphone and calls the cops and like, hey, that guy, that guy you're looking for is on this bus. Ramirez shits his pants and he's like, oh, fuck, I'm made. Jumps off the bus. People up and down the street are spotting him and this is downtown LA. So everyone's like, Hey, Hey, in that, in that, that fucker, the night stalker, he's running. They said that this dude must've ran like a mile and a half up this street, down this street. He's going all over and people are following this guy. Like the, the longer this, this, uh, this chase goes, the larger the group gets and they beat his ass that I died. I have never heard of a group of people catching a serial killer and beating the monkey shit out of him. Like to the point when the cops showed up, Ramirez almost threw himself in the back of the cop car because he got tired of getting his ass beat. And the cop who responded didn't know it was Richard Ramirez. He just got a call of a riot in this neighborhood. He shows up and Richard Ramirez runs up. He's like, Hey, I'm Richard Ramirez. I'm the night stalker. Arrest me because these people are going to fucking kill him. That's the night stalker story right there. Like I was just, I had never heard this story. Like I said, this was the first serial killer who'd been in business, so to speak in my lifetime. And so this whole story, I, 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 I'm vaguely familiar with the story, but I wasn't, you know, I didn't know the details. So to find out that this dude got caught because a group of people in LA decided to beat the living shit out of him. I was, I four o'clock in the morning, I'm watching this and I'm applauding. It was great. So highly recommend how to be a cult leader, how to be a tyrant and Night Stalker, The Hunt for Richard Ramirez. Highly recommend those three on Netflix. All right, going to cover one more thing before we call it quits here, and that is this weekend, WWE SummerSlam, which used to be my favorite pay-per-view. It really was, besides WrestleMania, because SummerSlam was my first pay-per-view that I ever watched as a wrestling fan. 
SummerSlam 88, Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage versus Andre the Giant, Ted DiBiase, with Jesse Ventura as a special guest referee in the main event. Yeah, that was my first pay-per-view ever. And for the longest time before WWE moved their pay-per-views to the weekend, SummerSlam always fell on the first day of school. So I would kind of talk my parents into, oh, I got to go back to school. Well, hey, can I get this wrestling pay-per-view so I can come home and watch it? Because first day of school always sucks. And they fell for it every year. So, yeah, SummerSlam is my sentimental favorite. And we opened this with a cold open starring Kid Rock, which was really cool because it's been so long since I've seen Kid Rock do anything but shoot at beer cans because he was afraid they were going to make him gay. So, yeah, it was actually cool to see him do. It was recorded. It was pre-recorded. So they're like, all right, if you do any homophobic shit, we can edit that out. Uh, he did not scream, my name is Kid. Maybe because he's getting up there in years and he's forgotten what his name is. And um, But, yeah, so Kid Rock opens the show. That was 45 seconds of my life I'll never get back. First match out, we have Logan Paul versus Ricochet. Because Logan Paul said, I want to, I'll do the show, but I want to go on first because I want to fly from Detroit to Texas to watch my brother fight another over the hill MMA fighter in a sport this MMA fighter has never competed in. So, yeah, that happened. And can we agree that Logan Paul is just the new Shane McMahon? Think about it. Shane McMahon did a bunch of high spots, a bunch of flippy shit, wasn't a great pro wrestler. Like, name, name a great. Shane McMahon match. That's okay. I'll wait. Can't think of one, can you? You know why? Because Shane McMahon never had a good match ever. Yeah, we look back at the Attitude Era and Shane O'Mac and Mean Street Posse and him and Pete Gas and all that shit. Yeah, Shane McMahon sucked. Shane McMahon was the Eric Trump of the WWE. Like he's only famous because his dad was famous. That was it. And now we have. Logan Paul, who's younger, more athletic, but basically he's doing, he's doing the Shane McMahon playbook, like just flippy shit and high spot, not a whole lot of psychology. He's had two matches since WrestleMania. That's two matches since April. So, I mean, trust me from personal experience, working every other month, you're not going to get better because that's describes my whole career. But this match seriously had the it it broke the record for most instant replays in a match ever like i seriously every 3 minutes they replayed something else and they were showing replays of like high cross bodies like these weren't 630 splashes these weren't you know sky sky twister presses that he jumped up high and came down with a cross body and that got a replay there were more instant replays in this match than there are super kicks in your average Young Bucks match. That's it was just absolutely ridiculous. And both Logan Paul and Ricochet went into this match saying that this is going to be the most viral match in WWE history. Which is such a fucking Gen Z thing to say. Like, not the best match in WWE history, the most viral match. Oh my, fuck you. And in the end, when this match was over, this match had more high spots 
than two stoned 15-year-olds playing a video game. There was just flips and jumps and high spots. And in the end, some random dipshit apparently jumped the guardrail, which tells, says a lot about security at a WWE event, puts brass knuckles on Logan Paul's hand, and Logan Paul knocks Ricochet out with brass knuckles. And at that point, Michael Cole became my just became my hero when he said, well, that was a great matchup, but the ending sucked. Yes, Michael Cole, that finish did indeed suck. We then move on to Brock Lesnar versus Cody Rhodes, the rubber match. Brock has a, has a win over Cody. Cody has a win over Brock. And this is the rubber match. This is, this is for all the marbles. And it's at this point that we are told there's four main events. And I stopped and I thought, wait, hold on, hold on. This, this show has, you have four main events. Okay, first thing, there, there's only one main event, hence, hence the term main. You can't have more than one main. Maybe, I, I mean, I dropped out of junior college twice, so, you know, I don't have a great grasp on the English language, but fairly certain that you can't have more than one main. But let's, let's pretend this is the first of four main events, and, and you put it second on the card. For, for those of you who don't know wrestling booking, nobody wants to go second. That sucks. There's two great spots to be in on a wrestling card. Obviously, the main event, last show of the evening. You are giving these people, hopefully, the show has built to where this is the crescendo. This is the climax. This is the, this is the match you need a cigarette after. That's how good this match should be. However, if you can't be the last match on the show, the second best spot to be in is first. Because that first match out of the gate sets the tone for the rest of the night. So, and I love being the first match. I really do. You set the tone for the rest of the night. I've said this before. And for me, I can change out of my gear. I can go sit in the back row and I can watch the rest of the show with a, with a drink in my hand or food or whatever. It's awesome. Your main event went on second. All right, let's roll with it. I don't think it's terribly out of line to say Cody got his ass kicked for this entire match. Cody got thrown around in this match like a seven-year-old before seatbelt laws were invented. Like he just got bounced around this ring, just getting his ass kicked and we have even more instant replays like that. It was just the theme of the night was we need an instant replay every three and a half minutes. And I really I'm I'm wondering, did Rocket Mortgage and C4 Energy pay for 193 instant replays because they got them every time there was an instant replay, you got to see their little bullshit logo in the background. So yeah, it just kept going all night long. And at one point this match turns into last Brock standing because Brock got to the point where he got bored of kicking Cody's ass. He would knock Cody out of the ring and then he'd go stand in the back 
and the refs counting seven, eight, nine, and Cody would get back in the ring. So Brock would go kick Cody's ass some more and then throw him outside the ring. And ref starts counting seven, eight, nine, Cody get back in the ring. Brock would start kicking the shit out of Cody some more. Throw him back out of the ring. This happened over and over. And I know what the intention was. The intention was to make Brock look like a monster. I get that. He's Brock fucking Lesnar. We've seen him do some scary shit. So they wanted Brock to just destroy Cody to the point where you don't think Cody's going to be able to stand later. However, this made Brock look like a dipshit because Brock would kick the shit out of Cody, throw Cody out of the ring. Referee tries to count to 10. Cody would beat the count back into the ring. Brock would kick the shit out of him some more, throw him back out of the ring. Referee would try and count to 10. I'm like, Brock, you only have to count to three to pin him. It takes a lot longer to count to 10 than to count to three. You dipshit. If you've got him beat, pin him so we can all go home. What the fuck? So, of course, Cody fires up, makes his big comeback on Brock. He hits Brock with a triple crossroads. Hits him with three separate crossroads, back to back to back. And it was at this point, I realized, Brock wears fight shorts, obviously. Brock's an MMA fighter. He wears fight shorts. Brock destroyed the crotch of his fight shorts. I don't know how. I don't know where. All I know is that it looked like he was wearing a loincloth. It's just it's just raggedy material hanging off Brock's hips and Brock's beast nuts hanging out. Like, I don't know what happened. I just know on that last crossroads, I'm like, is Brock wearing a kilt? What the fuck? So Cody hits that third crossroads, covers Brock, Pins him one, two, three. Cody wins the rubber match. And now we're moving Cody on to. I have no idea. I have no clue. Like, where do you go after Brock Lesnar? I, I have no idea. But Cody goes outside, hugs his mom because his mom is there in the front row. And did anyone else notice that Cody Rhodes' mom looks like Janine Melnitz from Ghostbusters? Is that just me? The next matchup is the uh, Creative Has Nothing For You Battle Royal, where we take 25 people that, that WWE has no idea what to do with these guys. They're all crazy popular, but for some reason, we have no storyline ideas what to do. So we're just going to throw these bastards into a Battle Royal and put it on third. I've said it before. Fuck Battle Royals. Every, every promoter loves Battle Royals. Every pro wrestler fucking hates them because they're boring as shit. You, it's 20 guys in a ring. You're just throwing punches. You're just throwing kicks until somebody just heaves your dumb ass over the top rope. And you're like, finally, finally, I can go home. My favorite part of this was even WWE is in on the joke now. Even WWE acknowledges battle royals are boring as shit. So they had a hype video before the Battle Royal. And as Michael Cole put it, this is a history of Battle Royals in WWE. Folks, nobody gave a shit. Like, 
nobody, there's been nobody in a WWE crowd that has been excited about a battle royal since 1985. Like the WrestleMania 2 battle royal was the last time that anyone gave a shit about a battle royal. And so they give you this, this package of this video package with Stone Cold Steve Austin, Bret Hart, The Rock. It, ironically, no Chris Benoit. Wonder why not. Um, but my favorite was the last shot. Again, remember, this is the video package on the history of battle royals in WWE. And the last shot is Macho Man at the WCW World War Three Battle Royal. It wasn't even the same company. Like, you're telling me that you're trying to hype up battle Royals and you don't have enough of your own footage to fill a three minute video. I almost peed myself. I was laughing so hard. I really don't have any notes about this battle Royal. It's boring as shit. LA Knight won. The people went crazy because LA Knight finally won something. You know, they won't put a title on him. You didn't put him over for the money in the bank briefcase. So damn it. We'll give him the piece of shit battle Royal at SummerSlam. There you go. Now shut up. We move on to the grudge match between Ronda Rousey and Shayna Baszler in a match that had to be decided under MMA rules. Oh, fuck you. Folks, WWE and UFC are now owned by the same company. Why not just have a UFC match? You have Ronda Rousey and Shayna Baszler, two very accomplished female MMA fighters, just put him in a fucking action, like put him in an actual MMA fight. How about that? No, no. WWE has to have its own MMA rules match. And this failed on such an epic scale. First off, they had just some random WWE referee refereeing a UFC fight, an MMA fight, basically. Not UFC, an MMA fight. Go ahead and get John McCarthy. You, you can't get John McCarthy to referee a Ronda Rousey, Shayna Baszler fight freely. And then from the opening bell, this, the crowd went mild. They didn't give a shit because this is a pro wrestling audience and they didn't come here to see MMA. And those fans that are familiar with MMA knew this was shit. So right off the bat, you've pissed off both your wrestling fans and, and any MMA fans that might have been in the audience, like both of them knew this was absolutely horrible. My favorite spot in the first three minutes was Shayna throws a roundhouse head kick and Ronda Rousey hits the ground like it's the Holly Holm fight all over again. Like she just got dropped like so, like she was shot by a sniper, hits the ground, rolls out of the ring. Now, in an MMA fight the fight would be over. Clearly this fighter took a head kick and now she ran out of the ring in any second rate MMA organization. The fight's over fights done. Not in WWE. No Rhonda makes it back into the ring, runs at Shayna hits her with this just flying knee to the face, which drops Shayna and referee just stands there. Again, in any MMA fight, you have a fighter hit the ground that hard, referees checking on him, and possibly calling off the fight. That's that's a knockout. 
No, this referee just goes over and asks Shayna, are you okay? Are you all right? Oh my God. This, this was seriously the worst MMA referee since Steve Mazzagatti. Had to be. At one point, you actually hear Ronda Rousey tell the, tell the referee what MMA rules are. You hear Ronda yell, that's a knockout. Stop the fight. I'm like, oh my God, this is horrible. I will say this. Between the shit battle royal that we just watched and this horrible MMA style match, it killed the instant replays. There were no instant replays for the 30 minutes these two matches were going on. So, you know, I guess small favors, I guess. Anyway, this fight ends with a completely horrible uh, choke out finish. Shayna Baszler goes to put Ronda in a rear naked choke. Ronda gets Shayna's left hand and real simple, folks. One arm goes underneath the chin, grabs onto your own bicep, that hand that goes behind the head and you're pushing the head forward so that the throat is getting pressed down on your own forearm, choking the person out. Real simple. We've seen it for 30 years in MMA. So the person getting choked either taps or they go unconscious. It's real simple. No, not in WWE. No, Shayna goes to put the the choke in. Rhonda grabs that hand that goes behind her head, pulls it out so that there's no pressure forcing Rhonda's throat onto Shayna's forearm. Real simple way to break a chokehold. Textbook shit. No, Shayna bites her own glove. So apparently Shayna Baszler has the neck strength of a Clydesdale because she bites her own hand and with her own neck pulls back hard enough that the forearm across Rhonda's throat puts her out. Rhonda goes unconscious because, you know, Ronda Rousey's never been in an MMA fight and doesn't know to tap out if she's in trouble. That was it. That that was that was the match. A one-arm choke and Ronda Rousey went unconscious like she had been hit with a tranquilizer dart. Like she she passed out like a narcoleptic. That Yeah. Well, that was a great matchup, but the ending sucked. Sorry Michael Cole, you're only half right this time. Hey, you know that part of the show where we lie about the attendance? We're there already. We are told that the paid admission for this show is 59,194, which 24 hours earlier, Nick Khan announced to shareholders that they had 43,000 tickets sold. So on Friday, there were 43,000 tickets sold. On Saturday, they announced that there was 59,000 people in attendance. So uh, either they sold 16,000 tickets in 24 hours or WWE is lying to us. We then move on to the Intercontinental Championship match between Gunther and Drew McIntyre. And, oh my God, these poor bastards. Because apparently not only did Shayna Baszler put Ronda Rousey to sleep, she knocked out this audience. Because these people didn't give a shit for the first half of this match. Gunther and Drew McIntyre had to beat the living shit out of each other just to wake this crowd up. And they did. Gunther and Drew McIntyre just stiffed the crap out of each other. And I will say this, to their credit, the mark of a good match 
if the crowd couldn't care less at the beginning, but the crowd is on their feet by the end, they just saw a great match. That is great pro wrestling. And that's what these two guys did. These guys put on such a great match, it woke up the instant replay guy. Because they, again, started throwing out instant replays every 90 seconds. These guys just stiffed the shit out of each other. And the crowd was loving it. The finish comes. I have no idea what they were going for. Whether it was a superplex, I don't know. But Gunther's sitting up on the top rope. Drew is going for something. I have no idea. And then all of a sudden, Drew McIntyre just crunches his own nuts on the top rope. Like, it wasn't a struggle and Gunther pushed him. No. Drew's punching Gunther in the head and then just throws himself down and crushes his nuts on the top rope like like I'm watching an episode of Jackass. Drew hits the mat. Gunther comes off with a flying splash, which looked a lot like Owen Hart's old uh, Blue Blazer splash. I have to say that. I'm thinking about stealing that. Picks Drew McIntyre up, hits him with a lariat, Stan Hansen lariat, which looked awesome, and then power bombs him. Gunther retains one, two, three. Great match, but unfortunately it was booked right after an absolute crap fest. We then have the world heavyweight title match between Seth Rollins and Finn Balor. This was great. I'm going to say up to this point, best match of the night. Whether it's one of the four main events, I have no idea because they never actually told us what the four main events were. They just told us that we had them. This was fantastic. The story that they're telling with Finn Balor, Damian Priest, and the rest of the Judgment Day, awesome. Awesome. So you have that story coming in, and then we have that seven-year-old story of... The night Finn Balor beat Seth Rollins for this very title, but Finn Balor separated his shoulder and so had to give the title back, like had to vacate the title because he was going to have surgery and he was going to be out for the next six months. And Finn's career never really recovered, if you think about it. Like, Finn just got brought up from NXT. He's now a main eventer. In his very first main event, blows out his shoulder, has to have it reconstructed, and his career has never recovered. So now you have two awesome stories going into this match. And these guys put on a clinic. This was seriously such a great match. And then now we have that other storyline with Damian Priest with the Money in the Bank briefcase. You see Priest just walk down to the ring. And Balor's looking at him like, what the shit are you doing here? And so now you have this, is Priest trying to help Balor win? Is Priest trying to cash in and win the title instead of Balor? You also have Seth Rollins in the ring. So are we going to have another WrestleMania moment where Priest inserts himself into this match and now it's a three-way? There was so many different storyline possibilities going into this. It was awesome. There was one part that I was kind of confused on, but I still thought it was great because you don't know what is Damian Priest's motivation here. Is he trying to help Finn win the title or is he just is he trying to screw Finn over? 
And he keeps trying to give Finn the briefcase. Like, here, hit him with the briefcase. Hit him with the briefcase. And Finn's going, no, I got this. Fuck off. Leave me alone. We're sticking with plan A. And at one point, Priest just leaves the briefcase and walks over and distracts the referee. And Finn, who's been telling Priest this whole time, no, I'm not going to cheat. I got this. I got this. He sees the briefcase and goes, ah, fuck it. I'm going to hit him with the briefcase. Goes to pick it up. Seth Rollins hits a curb stomp, stomps Finn Balor's face into this briefcase, rolls him over, ref counts three. Seth Rollins wins, retains his title, and just got the hell out of there. He bailed. And you, you're left with this camera shot of Finn Balor sitting in the ring, just staring back at Priest. And Priest staring back at Finn Balor like, you fucked up. Don't blame me. You fucked this up. So, awesome. I thought this match was great. Storyline-wise, probably the best booked uh, the best book match on the show so far. So that was awesome. Which leads us to the women's world heavyweight title match. World heavyweight? No, just the women's title. Folks, there's like 16 titles in WWE and they all have a different name. This is the women's world title or just the women's title? Anyway, Asuka, your women's world champion versus Bianca Belair and Charlotte Flair in a triple threat match. Is this one of the four main events? I have no idea. I have no clue. There have been six possibilities for the four main events. I'm not sure at this point. It was a match. There were moves. There were flips. All three women involved are fantastic athletes. And if you randomly just took any one of these women out of it, the other two would have had a much better match. But no, WWE's got to throw... All three people in and have this match. Folks, I was fried. By this point, I was fried. I want to say it was like one o'clock in the morning at this point when I'm watching the show. I ran down to Grover Beach yesterday. I had some friends who had an, who threw an engagement party. And so Grover Beach from Bakersfield is two and a half hours. I drove two and a half hours to go to their engagement party and then drive back. So I had five hours of round trip drive time under my belt at this point, And this show ended up being four hours. So the fact that I remember nothing about this match, I'm lucky. I remember my own name at this point. I really do. So I remember it was a decent match. I remember that Bianca Belair. Oh, I do remember that. I should have notes. Shouldn't I? That would make more sense. At one point, Bianca's thrown over the top rope and you just hear her whole body weight hit the metal steps. And I'm just like, oh shit. Because I thought I just witnessed someone die. Because this this tiny little woman falls 10 to 12 feet and you just hear her body hit metal. But... Because it's WWE and because there had to be 193 instant replays on this show, they seriously showed this three times, but they did it from camera angles to where you can't see Bianca hit the stairs. Just from the angle, Bianca was five feet away from the stairs when she landed. 
<laughs> so Bianca's tossed 12 feet in the air, misses the steps by like five feet. And some producer back in the truck hit a sound effect of flesh on steel. And when I realized this, I kept replaying it. I kept rewinding it on my remote and I laughed harder and harder every single time. In all fairness, this is genius. In all fairness, this was absolute genius because the fans in the building don't hear or don't don't hear the metal. They don't hear the sound of Bianca hitting the stairs. The the crowd at home, the the viewers at home don't see her body collide with the stairs. They just hear the sound. So this is some perfect like Chris Angel sleight of hand shit where the people watching it don't hear the sound effect. The people hearing the sound effect don't actually see it happen. This was genius. This was some, some smoke and mirrors, just absolute fuckery. It was great. The finish of this match was very creative, but very dumb because Charlotte Flair has Bianca Belair in a figure four. Bianca has the, the destroyed knee that she got from not hitting the stairs. So Charlotte has the figure four. Asuka spits blue mist into Charlotte's face. Charlotte's in pain. She's blind. She can't see, but it never dawns on her to let go of the figure four. Asuka goes to attack Bianca, who's in the figure four. Bianca creates Asuka. Charlotte can't break it up because she won't let go of the hold. And somehow Bianca pins Asuka without tapping out to Charlotte Confused yet? I watched the damn thing and I was confused. But I do know that we now have a new women's champion. Bianca just beat Asuka and Charlotte Flair to win the women's title. And we hear Damage Control's music. And I totally forgot that EO Sky had the money in the bank briefcase. So she can cash that in for a title shot anytime she wants. And I saw something that just made me laugh because EO sky and Bailey come running down the aisle and they just start hitting everybody with the briefcase. Charlotte got hit. Oscar got hit. They get in the ring and they just beat the crap out of Bianca, your new women's champion with the briefcase and after they've basically committed assault with a deadly weapon, they hand the briefcase to the referee and the ref starts the match. Eosky hits her moonsault off the top. She covers Bianca Belair. We have a one. We have a two. We have a three. We now have two title changes in under two minutes. I rewound it. And between the time that Bianca beat Oscar for the title and the time that EO Sky turned around and beat Bianca for that title that she just beat Oscar for, it was a minute and 35 seconds. <laughs> Bianca Belair's title reign lasted as long as your average TikTok video. That, that was a thing. That, yeah. So I always love when somebody who wasn't involved with the match walks out with a championship. Like, that always cracks me up. I have no idea why. Which leads us to what I'm assuming is the final four of four main events. The main event. 
at least the last match on the show. I don't know what the final four main events were. I have no idea. But we have, for the Universal Championship, the Tribal Chief Roman Reigns against Main Event Jey Uso. And hold on to that Main Event shit. Hold on to that Main Event Jey Uso shit, because that's going to come around and bite them in the ass. All right. Again, this is your typical Roman Reigns match. So from the moment they started doing... Uh, they started doing ring entrances. I went and did my dishes because I know Roman Reigns entrance is going to take like 38 minutes. You, this is a guy who takes five minutes to walk 30 feet. This show was inside a Ford field. They, they had this show in a football stadium. This is going to be a while. It, it's going to be a while from Ro- for the t- for Roman to get from the locker room to the ring. I had time to go do my dishes. And this is not just a match for the universal heavyweight title of the world. Did that on purpose. The universal heavyweight title of the world. That's how they announced it. This is also the head of the table. So apparently the winner of this match gets to be the Samoan Tony Soprano. Just he gets to run the family. That's that's going to happen. And this was folks. I'm I'm sorry, but I'm burnt out on this storyline. This this bloodline storyline. I'm burnt out on the Roman Reigns title run because Roman Reigns has become the modern day Hulk Hogan. Which is a good thing and a bad thing because Roman Reigns is now the face of the business. Most people, most wrestling fans today, you hear pro wrestling, you think of Roman Reigns. In the 80s, you hear pro wrestling, you think about Hulk Hogan. So yeah, Roman has become the face of this business. Therein lies the positive. The negative is just like Hulk Hogan, every Roman Reigns match is the exact fucking same difference. Hogan only wrestled eight to 10, maybe 12 minutes. That was it. Roman Reigns has to go 35 minutes, legit 35 minutes every single time, which is fine. If it's an entertaining 35 minutes, this was main event. Jey Uso getting his ass handed to him for 27 of 35 minutes. That's yeah, that's what this was. Okay. And because it was tribal combat, which is basically this month's term for no holes barred might be a street fight. Could be a bunkhouse. Could be false count anywhere. It's the exact same fucking match every single time. But no, we had to call this one tribal combat. Have I said, fuck you. Fuck you guys for doing this shit to me. And I will say this. Wrestling fans are some table bump loving motherfuckers. The drinking game. Seriously, from this point on, anytime you're watching wrestling and the crowd starts chanting for tables, take a drink because you will be hammered halfway through this show. You will be. These bastards kept chanting for tables. I have watched matches where guys are getting hit with light tubes. They are getting cut with pizza cutters. They are getting slammed on thumbtacks 
and the crowd wants tables. And I keep asking myself, why the hell are you killing yourselves with light tubes and pizza cutters and thumbtacks? All these bastards want is tables. Just give them tables. That's it. So this match gets to about the 25 minute mark. And this match turns into every Roman Reigns match we've seen over the last three years. Roman starts out the match by himself. And then about three quarters of the way through, there's a run in. Somebody comes running in to help Roman Reigns win. And Roman and Jey Uso, they're fighting out in the crowd. And all of a sudden, Solo Sokoa shows up out of nowhere. How? How does a 300-pound Samoan dude in spandex tights and no shirt on sneak up on you? That's, that's what I want to know. Because it happens every month. It happens at every show. For some reason, this dude who you would think stands out in a crowd sneaks up on whoever Roman Reigns is wrestling. That happens. Anyway, maybe because I live in Bakersfield and I would notice a giant Samoan dude in spandex tights, no shirt, and bleach blonde hair might stand out a little bit here. I don't know. So Roman and Solo start beating the crap out of Jey Uso, and because it's tribal combat, there's no disqualifications. This is completely legal. And which makes me wonder, Jay, bring a baseball bat. Just settle this shit. Like fucking street justice, dumbass. Drag Jay's ass back to the ring. They're beating the crap out of him two on one. Solo picks Jay up, sets up for Roman to hit the ropes, comes in with a spear. Jay pulls Solo in front of him. Roman spears Solo. This crowd pops. Because they actually believe this is it. Jay's finally going to beat Roman. Roman has been champion for 1,897 fucking days, whatever the hell it's been. And we're finally going to see somebody beat him. So Jay hits a super kick. Jay goes to the top rope. Big Samoan splash. Hits Roman with a spear. This is over, right? Gotta be. Jey Uso covers Roman. Ref counts one. Ref counts two. As the ref is coming down from three, some other random dumb shit jumps over the guardrail and pulls Jey Uso out of the ring. And the dude's wearing a hoodie. The dude has on, I think, what looked like a COVID mask. I'm not sure. Maybe he didn't get vaxxed. I don't know. And you see him pull the hood down, pull the mask down. It's Jimmy Uso. Jay Uso's twin brother. And this seriously just became a daytime soap opera. Like, I realize pro wrestling has always been a male soap opera. But think about this. You have one guy fighting his cousin. And his twin brother jumps in, not to help him out, but to protect the cousin. So now you have brother against brother. Son of a bitch. This is seriously some of the most overly dramatic shit. Like, I was on board. I'm not going to lie. I was on board for the first year. First year, I was all in. Fuck yeah, you're finally doing something with Roman Reigns. Then it got to a year and a half. All right. We've turned Roman heel. Cool. Then it hits two-year mark. All right, this shit's done. I'm sick of this shit. We are now at the three-year mark. Three years and counting. 
And I have to admit, I couldn't give a shit less. I don't. And to, to not to put too fine of a point on this, but Jey Uso just got pulled out of the match. His twin brother just screwed him out of the world heavyweight title. And these two seriously stared at each other for what felt like three or four minutes. They just stood there staring at each other forever. They really did. If I had a squints drop right now, I would just, I would use that forever. Yeah. And then all of a sudden Jimmy Uso kicks Jey Uso in the face, throws him back into the ring. Roman hits a spear through a table, covers him one, two, three. This Roman Reigns shit is still going. I will say the bright spot of this, I laughed hysterically. I laughed like a mental patient because everybody, every wrestling fan I, I saw on social media was convinced that Jey Uso, main event Jey Uso, was finally going to beat Roman after 1,800 days or whatever fuck it's been. Jey Uso was finally going to be the guy to beat Roman. And they took main event Jey Uso and they beat him like a mid-carder. And I laughed. I laughed so hard. And then I have no idea why pissed off wrestling fans give me so much joy on social media. Because just going through Facebook, going through Twitter X, going through all of these social media platforms and just watching these fanboys just throw temper tantrums one after another. It was great. It was awesome. I'm a sick fuck. I realize this. I, I really am. But anyway, that was SummerSlam 2023. It was a long ass show, folks. It really was. Holy shit. Never watch, never watch a four hour wrestling show after spending five hours behind the wheel of a car. Don't, don't do it. Just absolutely don't do it. It's not worth it. So, all right, that's the show for this week. I am Greg Hernandez, the Ninja Nerd Warrior. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter X, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Um, if you like the show, thank you. Please like and subscribe on all the platforms I'm available on. And if you know somebody who wants to be a cult leader, uh, send the show to them. I think, I think I can help them out. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Amazon Music. Or you can go to the source and you can go to ninjanerdwarriorpodcast.com. So with that, uh, you know what? I'm also going to acknowledge the fact that we're going on five weeks now. We're going on five consecutive weeks that I've, I broke my record. Hell yeah. So, all right, folks, that is the show for this week. And I will talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye.